ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to the 10th anniversary of the minefield. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. Scott Stevens, my co-host. We try to negotiate. <laughs> going, uh, <laughs> you can't do that. Well, can I get, you know what? I was just thinking about that. <laughs> I'm not starting with another listener email this week, Scott. Don't worry. But I was thinking about, there was a phrase in that email last week that caught my attention, apoplectic with joy. Yeah. And I thought, can you do that? Does apoplexy imply rage? No. But then I thought, well, it, it obviously can't because otherwise apoplectic with rage would be a redundancy. That's right. It implies overwhelmedness. Yeah. You don't ordinarily hear apoplectic and joy in the same phrase. but No, but it's one of the things I love in writing and in language most. That's right. Is when someone takes a phrase that is so commonly used that we don't even hear or understand the individual words anymore and then changes it, hmm. uses it in a way that is correct to sort of startle us back into realizing what, what the word might mean. Yep. The best yeah. kind of writing I've always felt is the writing that stops you in your tracks. Yeah that causes you to pause for just a moment, to look differently. Uh, This is why I've got a probably pretty low opinion, which is ironic, uh, of a lot of what op-eds contribute to our common life. Mm. Uh, But I think a really good op-ed, what it does is it's an invitation to stop and look differently Mm. because of the way that it reframes precisely what it is we thought were settled issues. Yes. And I think this is especially true in language because... I've often had this thought, have you, that the thing about cliches is they're often very good. (laughs) That's how they became cliches. But then they reach a point where you can no longer use them because they're cliches. And so you have to twist them or you have to come up with another thing. And I think there's there's something about the skill of a writer who can do that that's... uh, Yeah, better to my mind to reach for aphorisms, which contain an entire... An entire world in a single phrase. Yeah, but don't you think a lot of cliches would have begun as aphorisms? Quite possibly. Yeah. Quite possibly. All right. Well, we're not entering a world that's remotely literary. Well, that's actually, that might be harsh. Oh, I like that. What I I meant by that is the mode of delivery rather than the (laughs) substance of it. Because the thing about reading is it's very often, most often, solitary. Mm. And today we're discussing the very opposite of that, where things are, are communal and why we do this, what this means, particularly when refracted through pop culture. Now, it's going to be great to drag you into pop culture today, Scott, although I should say this was your idea, this show, so you've dragged yourself. But why don't you set it up however you want to set it up? All right, so riddle me this, Waleed. We have now, as of last week, we did two shows in which the artist currently known as Taylor Swift... (laughs) Featured. <laughs> you play, implying there's going to be a name change. No, no. <laughs> featured quite prominently. So last week we discussed deepfakes, its epistemological, mm. moral, political dimensions. This week we're doing something about live music events. And given that the Taylor Swift show, the Eras Tour, is, depending on when you're listening to this, it's either getting set to land in Melbourne and Sydney, or it already has, there's one other show where we discussed Taylor Swift. Do you remember what it is? No. You mean ever or this year? No, ever. Ah, no, not off the top of my head. We did, much to my protestations, we did an episode about the publicizing or the publication of confessionals around Taylor Ah, Swift and Justin Bieber. 
Yes, this was around the time the documentaries... That's right. Were co- yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not exactly that we are jumping on a bandwagon. And I think one of the things that you can always be assured of if ever you listen to The Minefield is that we're going to do something so completely untimely, so ridiculously <laughs> anachronistic uh, that you could never feel that we're simply following whatever this particular crowd is. In this instance, though, we are exactly following a crowd because I want to know when it is so expensive to attend live music events, and that's a phrase incident, if we can just put an asterisk next to it, I want to interrogate that particular phrase because I still think of concerts. Mm. I think there's a subtle difference between a concert and a live music event. Oh, okay. Um, So what is it, given the fact that so much emotion and inconvenience can be caught up in trying to procure a ticket in the first place, knowing that you're going to have to wait for hours to either secure your ticket or to get into the venue, knowing that you will be interacting with the artist, the artists that you are going to see primarily by means of a big screen, even when you get to the event. Mm. What is it that draws people in their millions to attend live music events? And I would just say, before I hand it over to you, Last year, when we had, a, we had our conversation with Agnes Callard, the philosopher from the University of Chicago, on travel and the ethics thereof, one of the things that we pointed to was in the wake of the pandemic, there was the need, almost the desperation to engage in international travel came roaring back. Uh, the knowledge that we couldn't created a profound, almost insatiable desire to travel mm. overseas. You know, the same thing has happened with concerts, with tours. Since the pandemic, five out of the top 10 grossing music events, tours of all time have taken place. Is that allowing for inflation and population, et cetera? Or are these just raw numbers? Uh, These are raw numbers, but most of them them are competing with, say, uh, the teens. So, Mm. you know, 2010 to 2019. Uh, There are a few examples. There are some Rolling Stones that give very, very good competition. There are a few Michael Jackson tours that give very, very stiff competition. Um, But nothing, nothing in terms of the number of shows, the number of fans that they are attracting, the merchandise surrounding, nothing really comes close to two concert tours in particular that are going to, that kind of redefine our expectations. One is Beyonce's Renaissance tour, and the other is Taylor Swift's Era's tour. Both of them have a degree of the epic about them. This isn't a band passing through town, doing a nice, neat hour, 10-minute set list, mm. and then moving on. There is something, and I, I'm really curious to interrogate you about the dynamics here. There is something epic. There is something narratologically all-consuming about these shows, and they both, Beyonce's and Taylor Swift's, they both stand, when all is said and done, to grow somewhere in the order of $2.1 billion each, which is kind of staggering. So there is a need, there is a longing since the pandemic to attend these live music events. It's something that I find very, very curious. Um, I won't say that I don't understand it because I've been to a share of concerts in my time. I sound very old there. Mm. These I would not cross the street to attend, to be perfectly honest. And I don't 
not understand why people do, but I don't understand just what it is they get out of it when they do. Can I, there are two things I'm thinking here. At the same time as these, as this is happening, so you're talking about a couple of mega tours. Mm. I'm not sure that it, you know, I should have gotten some numbers from someone who would know, even if it's possible to know this. I'm not sure that attendance at live music events is higher or more common than it used to be because what you don't have any longer is the culture within popular music of typically bands mm-hmm. playing at local venues, the crowd gathering, momentum building, the record contract following that. Yeah. And that, so I don't know, maybe this is what you mean by a live music event as a different thing, but the habit of just attending a venue to see live music, it seems like it's dying to me. I'm sure there are counterexamples and so on, but like you see a lot of venues moving away from that. You know, unfortunately, poker machines has a bit to do with that mm. in parts of Australia. But I don't think we're in a habit of live music attendance in the way that perhaps we were in, I don't know, I'm going to say the 70s or the 80s, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't my era, but you know what I mean. So that's happening. And so I wonder what, if what we're seeing actually is a proliferation of mega events. Yes. They, I think which perfect. is slightly different. Yes, thing. it is. That's right. The other thing is, and I'm asking you really just so I know what to do with the show, you want to confine this to live music. So you don't want to interrogate or, or, or consider why it is people go to sporting events or why it is people go to, I don't know, it's hard to think of other mass sites of gathering. I was going to say writers' festivals or something, but that's a very different thing. Or mm. indeed, minefield live events, mm. um, which all tickets are gone. You're not interested in that. You, you want to make this specifically about music events because presumably you believe there is something particular to that. All right. So, look, I don't mind bringing any of those things into the conversation because I think there is a significant difference between, say, watching a sporting event on screen and being there, especially with either ardent fans or with the opposition, with the enemy, uh, watching one's team on the court, on the field. I think there is, there is a difference there. It's probably a difference that we can interrogate a little bit, but I think that the difference is greater when compared to what you just described as mega events, as opposed to going to see a particular band. Can I try to lay out a couple distinctions here that I think may yeah, or may not be that helpful? That would be useful, yeah. All right, all right. So I've been to see Pearl Jam in concert quite a number of times. They're my band. Part of the wonder of going to see them is that every performance is a kind of double or nothing. It's not a set set list. It's not something that has been choreographed or made to correspond to a particular light show or video show. The band is performing. And part of the joy of the experience isn't just hearing people around you singing along to particular songs. It's the way that energy meets energy. So, for instance, there's one performance that I vividly remember attending where more than half the people were sitting, which if you know anything about a a rock band, what what on earth are you doing? Why are you here? Just stay in your living room. Um, so, So there's a fundamental lack of energy, and there was a fundamental kind of disinterest in anything that weren't the headline songs. You know, play Jeremy. Play Alive. Play Better Man. Play Better Man. But then you have the obscure B-side track that comes out. 
and it's just quiet. And then Do you know can, what this reminds me of? Sorry, yeah, to please, please, please. When Dire Straits came out <laughs> after the Brothers in Arms release, I was a really little kid when this happened. Yeah. And it was huge. I don't know if you remember. You wouldn't have been here at the time. No, I wasn't. The fact they were... And it was, I'd never really... It was the first time I'd seen a concert become like a national obsession for some reason. Like tickets were a big deal. It was being simulcast on radio and television and all sorts of things. It was like it was... Uh, yeah, for reasons I still don't quite understand, it was a really big deal. And I just remember... Mark Knopfler, the incredible mm. lead guitarist and lead vocalist, Die Straits. He is Die Straits. He just, in this simulcast concert, <laughs> this was the album that had Money for Nothing on it, mm. a huge single. And he just looked out into the crowd. He says, nice to see a few of the fans. Nice to see a few tourists as well. Yeah, <laughs> I just exactly. Perfect. A way of encapsulating the phenomenon you're talking about. So it's a well-known phenomenon beyond Pearl Jam, but it yes, is. I know exactly what you're talking about. Of, of course. And so then when there is that moment of, let's just call it energy meeting energy, okay, this is the kind of crowd we have tonight. Then there are these various, I don't know quite else how to put it, there are these various votive offerings that take place. So if a certain amount of energy meets the energy from the band, you know that there's going to be two, possibly three encores. You know that they're going to be reaching way, way, way back in the back catalog. And you ha- you nurture a a kind of longing that it's something other than the hits from the early grunge days of the early 1990s that are going to come out. That's something very, very deep that maybe you've always loved or that's always touched you. There's a kind of double or nothing that's taking place. And then beyond that, you've got the particular dynamic that takes place when you're watching performers on stage interacting with one another and they're actually playing and they're actually singing. So there's something about the double or nothing experience of an actual live concert where the performers are performing when it's not pre-produced, the music isn't pre-recorded, it's not all synchronized or choreographed to a particular light or video show. In other words, it's not simply a spectacle. There is yeah, a very different from the, the modern pop show, which is highly choreographed. Precisely. Thank yeah. you. And then you have those moments, one of my other great loves, Bob Dylan, where such is the process of reinvention and the perpetual desire to alienate one's fans from oneself that he would play songs in such a way, and here I think specifically of his famous, infamous tour of the UK in 1966, where he played the songs that people wanted him to play but did it in a way that they found unrecognizable. In other words, to prevent them from being able to sing along, <laughs> to prevent them from... And again, I think there's a really crucial... It's a kind of double or nothing that's going on there. So both of those two models that I've just described, there is an interchange, there is an exchange, a certain form of communion, let's say, that takes place between the performers and the crowd that has the opportunity to make this and knowing that we are sharing a common space, something that is genuinely special. And then you've got, say, the example of the other thing that I tend to attend, which is a classical music performance. I'll never forget the first time that I heard Beethoven's Third Symphony performed. I'd only ever heard it before through speakers that were right in front of me. And then hearing the way, anybody who knows the initial movements, for instance, hearing the way that the sound quite literally undulates from one side of the stage to the other. It sweeps across the orchestra and then meets back on the other side, simulating almost waves as it do. Watching, watching the string section, going for dear life, trying to keep up, trying to keep up with the pace, with the tempo, and knowing that in the way that Beethoven wrote it, no instrument would be up to the challenge. 
Well, that experience was transformative for me. Seeing it being performed made me hear it unlike I ever had before. Much the same experience as when I first attended a performance of Chopin's 24 Preludes. There was an intimacy of communion. Nobody else could have been there in the hall and it would have had precisely the same effect. This was being played to me and watching the agony, the labor of the pianist. It was transformative for me in a way that I never could have imagined having listened to the piece of music so many times. So all it's those... not communal though, is it? It's no, it's not communal. Well, it's, like whenever I see it's an orchestra, communion. no, no, I was going to say the opposite actually. That's interesting. Maybe you're right. So it's communion with the individuals and the stage rather than yes. being there together. Hmm. Yes. So whenever I see an orchestra, it feels as though, I'm sure this is not actually true, but it feels as though it would be all the same whether I was the only one in the audience or not. Hmm. Whereas you could never say that of a concert. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I should also say that perhaps the most powerful performance I have ever attended was one conducted here in Brisbane late last year of Benjamin Britten's War Requiem. There comes a particular point towards the end when the bass and the tenor, representing two warring sides of the war in question, are singing together intermittently. Well, I disgraced myself and embarrassed my wife by sobbing uncontrollably during it. Uh, But it didn't matter to me because there's no one else there apart from the choir and the orchestra. You're more in common with Swifties than you think then, Scott. But again, there was, it's because there was communion taking place. So then you have something, and I think there is a vast but a subtle difference between, say, a Beyonce concert and a Taylor Swift concert. And it all has to do with, to my mind, I could be wrong. I really could be wrong here. But so here are two highly choreographed shows. These are events with a capital E. These are mega events. And there might be subtle little variations. There might be little interplays between performer and crowd. But what is necessary, what makes the whole thing work, what makes the tour work, is that it's pretty much the same show from city to city. With Beyonce, the relationship between crowd and performer is one of hierarchy. I'll never forget reading this glorious essay by the novelist Zadie Smith where she says that other people look at, say, Michael Jackson with wonder. They could never, ever, ever imitate the sharp angles, the lines of his moves and his dances. You look at him with wonder. When you look at Beyonce, it's obedience. She sits atop us. She stands over us. She commands us what to do in our obligation as the audience is to obey, is to obey the Queen Bee. It's this glorious observation I've never quite gotten over. But then you have Taylor Swift, and part of what it means to enter into her concerts, enter into her shows, especially the Eras Tour, is that this Eras Tour is her life. It is her artistic agency. It's her reclaiming her own narrative and inviting a group of passionate supporters, some of whom are united by their desire to protect her. This is part of what we discussed last week. Mm. Some of whom have quite literally grown up with her. I mean, they are millennials. She is a millennial. Uh, She has gone through, you know, sort of horrible breakups and tragic relationships. So have they. And so part of the era's tour is a kind of, she doesn't sit over them. She doesn't stand atop them. Instead, it's this, it may be a different type of communion, drawing, allowing the crowd to be drawn into 
the story of your own life. And so even though you're primarily interacting with her by means of this enormous screen because you can't see anything else that's going on, knowing that you are nonetheless in the same place, knowing that this becomes a form of solidarity, almost a kind of votive offering of one's own support, of one's own uh, identification with her, her cause, her agency, and opposition to all those who stand against her, then that becomes an entirely different dynamic, and I'm not entirely sure what it has to do with the music itself. Well, I think you're right to identify that in the case of Taylor Swift, and not only Taylor Swift, I've seen this in relation to other artists. The, the first one that comes to mind is, to me is Gracie Abrams, who yeah. has been supporting Taylor Swift, actually. Hmm. The relationship there is reflects the changing nature of celebrity in a way in that it is parasocial. What that really means is that there's a false intimacy between fan and artist, as though the fan on some level, even if not an intellectual one, seems really to believe that they're friends. Hmm. That the magisterial distance that once existed between artist and fan or celebrity and, and public is no longer there. And there's so there's an intimacy which helps explain the devotion and levels of devotion and a kind of devotion that I do think is different from what you would have seen with Beatlemania, for example, yeah, which was yeah, enormous true. and vast, but not quite intimate in the same way. Now, it, here am I e having not been there. But well, it, it was erotic instead of intimate. In other right. words, Beatlemania was erotic, whereas what is being staged or performed... And ecstatic. And ecstatic, thank you. What's yeah. being staged and performed with someone like Taylor Swift, I really do think is intimate, but you couldn't use either of those terms to describe Beyonce. Or no, Beyonce that's true. So, yeah. so that's a separate category. Mm. So I think... What do you get out of going to a concert like that? Well, it's the culmination or the tending to this intimate relationship, right? And it's a relationship that's constituted on a one-to-one -one basis because that's the way social media works. You're, you're literally looking at this person day in, day out or whatever it might be on your phone and so it feels intimate in a one-to-one -one way. But then you're also with other people who feel like they have the same, it becomes a friendship group or at least the, the social dynamics seem similar in that way. The one element though that you may have missed out is it's not just shared affection for the common musical performer, the common artist, but it's also the need to protect. Protection is such a major, major affect in... But one follows the other, right? I mean, we saw this with Britney Spears too. Yes, that's um, right. In a different true. sort of a way. And actually, it genuinely was protection because it literally got her out of a horrible situation. Mm. And it was fan activism that effectively moved things on that, certainly as far as public attention is concerned. I think... The fact that it operates the way you've identified, the protective element comes from the fact that it is so deeply personal, the connection, the content of the music and so on, it's about her. There are parallels to be drawn between Taylor Swift and someone like a Bob Dylan, mm -hmm. actually. And there have been one or two Taylor Swift songs I've heard and I've thought, that's like a Dylan song. The difference is the quintessential Dylan song is singing about a cause, a social moment, a perhaps a political moment or social issue, the quintessential Taylor song is about her. Mm, that's right. That's kind of the difference. But... Can I tell you what the connection between the two is? Yes, go on. With Taylor, it may well be a performance of the personal, but it is nonetheless her. I can't think of anyone who would say that what she does in her performances is somehow inauthentic. Whereas Dylan, it was a performance... And it never went deeper than skin deep. I mean, the, the first time that Dylan becomes genuinely personal is Blood on the Tracks. All of the yeah. folk songs, all of the activism. 
I mean, he's quite straightforward. <laughs> he's quite upfront about this. It was all a performance. It was a kind of moral confection because that's what the era demanded. And if people then right. were able to see some moral value in it or some political cause that it drove them towards, that's fine. But that's why he was able to chameleon-like move away from it. Okay. In- so, so each is really just drawing on the currency of the era, the yeah. currency of yeah. Dylan's era. That's right is the social activism. It's the movement that's in the air. The currency of our era is authenticity. Mm, that's right. And that's performed or otherwise. And they're not mutually exclusive categories, I would say, actually. And so this is what someone like a Taylor Swift offers in spades. But it's, it's not... The point we've skipped over is it's not just her life. It's her fan's life. It's the relatability element. The fact that this is so relatable means that everyone can buy into her story, but draw analogies with their own. And in that case, or in that sense, this is not so different from just about every other form of art. This is why we like dramas in some cases, or we like characters in dramas or in books and so on. We're constantly engaged in that process. So the question then that I have for you is what are you trying to discover here? Are you trying to discover what's unique about this particular concert, this particular tour, the response, the heightened response to this particular moment, or are you trying to find a common thread that spans live music performance? Because I think they they become very different questions. Yeah. Look, I'm more interested in the differences between live music performances. Let's move away from events. Okay. I'm, I'm more interested in the, in the subtle differences because I think those differences tell us a great deal about what it is we value. And the way it is that having seen music performed live... To my mind, it cannot help but transform the way that you hear that music, even more than seeing, say, a concert film. And I've, you know, I've attended Pearl Jam Live. I've seen a Pearl Jam concert film. The second was enjoyable. The first was transformative. Yeah, it's not the same. It's not the same. What I think interests me somewhat about the Taylor Swift tour and to a lesser degree Beyonce, even though I think that Beyonce is almost in every way a superior performer, certainly a more seismic one, despite what happened during the Taylor concert in Seattle. Um, What interests me at this moment, and this is something you've mentioned before, is there another celebrity that rivals her? In a time of cultural fracture, she is monoculture. Yeah, although there are racial inflections, I think. Of course, but, but certainly demographically. There is, age, yeah. yeah, yeah. There is something that kind of holds together there, which it makes it very difficult to imagine another performer around which so many people could gather with such abandon and with such emotional investment. So to my mind, there is the kind of singularity here that I guess I'd like to try to understand, which All I don't right. quite understand yet. But there's also You've- there's the differences that I think really are curious to me as well. You've laid this all at the feet of our guests. I have. All right, let's see what she makes of it. Our guest is Amanda Krauss. She's senior lecturer in psychology at James Cook University in Townsville, where, fortunately for us, she specializes in music psychology. 
Amanda, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, this is a really exciting topic. So uh, music psychology might not be a, a commonly known discipline. So I'll just start by sort of giving a little spiel about what it is. So my colleagues and I around the world were really interested in trying to understand people's musical behaviors. That includes things like why we play music, why we sing, but also what happens when we listen and create music and attend live concerts. So I'm really excited to join you guys for this conversation today. I think there's a couple terms that have come out from just listening to you guys talk a little bit, and one is authenticity, and I think that's a really important element here. We've seen uh, the proliferation of social media, and some people have now argued that actually it's really hard to separate music from social media, that they are very much intertwined mm. in our digital technologies. And so some people have argued that creating fan bases through social media that this element of authenticity or at least perceived authenticity is really something that plays a massive role in creating that fan base to then create these mega concert events. Hmm. What seems ironic to me about that is that it uses among the least authentic of platforms to do so. <laughs> I, was, I say among because I probably regard TV, TV as the, is the least most, authentic yeah. That's right. platform. Ra think. Radio the most, will it? Authentic, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a competition <laughs> between that and print probably. <laughs> but since we're here, yeah, radio, <laughs> <Okay>. sure. Um, <laughs> podcast. With but, that, though, I would say that that also goes to this idea that you brought up earlier, Waleed, about parasocial relationships. So it's mm. the perception of that. And so people can can present a very intimate picture on social media that they're inviting you into their home, into their space, into their lives, even if it is, you know, social media versus print versus the radio. Is that what's happening at a concert, though? This is the bit I'm interested in. Mm. I understand a parasocial relationship in your own home, on the bus or whatever, as you're looking at your, your phone. It happens with TV people. I mean, that's, I guess, the way the the authority of the newsreader has been established over a long period of time. I feel like I know that person. I can trust that person. You know, it happens on a certain level. But when you are at a gathering and there are a whole lot of other people, does the parasocial relationship thrive or, or shrivel away in those moments? Well, my colleagues and I have done a lot of research to try to understand why people engage with music in different formats, right? We can pull out our phone, pull up Spotify, listen to the radio, go to live concerts. And live concerts are different. They serve different purposes. There's different motivations than listening to recorded music. And the biggest difference is that there is this massively social component. It's social in the sense that if you're going to the concert with your group of friends or family or, you know, you know somebody you're going with, that's a social element. You also then have the social element of then you're one in amongst a crowd. And then there's also the dynamic between you and the performer. And even if there's distance there, you know, you're way in the back row of the concert hall or whatever it might be, that you're in that space together. It's unfortunate folding in real time. And that's what makes the live concert, the music event magical, is that you are experiencing it in real time. You have waited for this event. You are there with other people who are all sharing that social and deeply emotional experience. So, Which is why it's so thrilling when the yes. situation arises 
as Scott was describing, where you can see the band improvising something, where you can see them go, you know mm-hmm. what, tonight, let's do this. And they talk to each other and go, do you remember how to play that? Yeah, hell, hell let's do it, right? That becomes the most thrilling thing because the liveness of it, the fact that this is happening in real time and that it's unique, that it will ne- it's one night only, it can never be replicated, tomorrow will be different, that's there and, and it becomes manifest in that moment. And so I can see why that's really exciting. But what's interesting to me is that feeling somehow seems to survive even in the case of these pop mega concerts where they are so correct, like you will literally, I will walk here, I'll move over there, I'll do that, I'll look at the crowd, then I'll, there might be some very tiny differences, but nowhere near the same kind of spontaneity that you would find in a more rough and ready rock type setup, for example, um, or, or something before concerts became shows, which is mm. when did that happen? Probably 80s, maybe 90s, probably when that transition started to happen. The thrill still is there, though, isn't it? What, the like, thrill, how does that happen? Yes. And I think there, the thrill is still there. And yes, maybe it's more choreographed for the performer, but for the audience member, it's still spontaneous. You still aren't quite sure what song is going to be played next. You know, there are subtle differences. And so I suppose, yes, it might be a repeat of a show for the performer, but for the audience member, that's still a once-in-a-lifetime experience unfolding for them. So there's still the thrill there of, are they going to play my favorite song? What song is going to be next? I'm singing along, I'm dancing, I'm moving. And it's it's a very deeply personal experience. Can, can I press on this point, though? Sure. Sorry, to do, I don't mean to be obnoxious in doing so. But even those things you mentioned there, a lot of those have been taken away because that people go to the concert multiple times. I think in Taylor Swift's case, particularly there is a film of it. People have seen the film of it. They will then go to the concert and see the same concert. Set lists. I, one of the things I used to love most about concerts was going, if I was going with my brother, for example, on the way there, we would be playing a game as to what they're going to play first. What will the set list? Will they play this? That was the fun of it. Mm. Now, even for those bands who used to operate that way, the set lists are public. You've been following. I know exactly what he, she, they played at every concert on this tour over the past year or two because they've been publishing it on thing. I, I can write it out for you right now. I, can, I might even be able to describe what's going to happen. And yet the thrill somehow survives. I, I wonder if it's less about, and this is just a guess, less about it's a live moment that where anything could happen and it's one of a kind and more about I can't believe we're in this physical space together. <laughs> the kind of thing that I hear my son say about soccer players. Like when he'll go to a soccer match to see players he's only ever seen on TV, he's like, I can't believe they're in the same city as me. I don't know. I wonder if there's that effect taking over. Either way, the the magic you're describing seems robust, even in the face of the things that seem to ameliorate what has made it significant and special. That's true. And that's an interesting point because live music, when we became more and more able through digital technologies to, you know, download songs, we didn't even have to buy full albums. You can go song by song. With all of those changes, um, people were saying this is going to hurt live music because I can at any point in time listen to what I want. But we didn't see that happen. Live music retained that specialness. And, you know, as we've seen, people pay 
tons of money to go to a concert, go to multiple concerts and things like that. So I think there very much is that specialness of being in the same space, experiencing that with people we like. Even if we go by ourselves, you're still then swept up in the communal nature of that activity. And so I think there very much is that where I'm I'm in the presence of this person that maybe I, you know, really admire, that I idolize, that I absolutely adore. Okay. Amanda, you've just delivered me to exactly my <laughs> what may well be my fundamental question, query, hunch, suspicion. I should say that one of the greatest concerts I'd ever attended was a tiny one involving Powderfinger, this terrific rock band here in Brisbane. Small venue. They're a remarkable band. You could see everything. You could almost feel the sweat. It was glorious. All the Pearl Jam concerts I've I've attended, I've been able to be close enough where there's no... And, I mean, they don't use screens. So, you know, close enough that it matters. You can really say that you're in the same place rather than the same city. I'm curious about the mediation of enormous screens. Because when you're sitting so far away from some of the performers, okay, the music quality may well be good, although it may well be distorted as well. You may not be able to see the person physically, apart from, you know, just the odd glimpse uh, in and around the heads of the people in front of you. And most of the way that you're interacting with a person on stage is by means of the screen. Here's question number one. Are you saying that there is something about the communal aspect, not communion, say, with the performer, but the communal aspect with the people around you, that it's something like their presence there, the crowd, in other words, mediates a degree of connection with the performer. It's the crowd, if you like, that brings you close in a way that you could not otherwise be because you know, just simply to be able to say you know I'm in the same place I'm in the same stadium that can only carry you so far so that that's the first part or is what we're saying in a time of infinite electronic reproducibility where there is no limit to the number of songs that you can download there's not a certain number of CDs or a certain number of records you can download as much music as you possibly want which means that the recorded music has been debased in its value Attending a concert like this is the equivalent. I, I mentioned in a show that we did with Claire Bowditch last year that my second to youngest son has fallen in love with vinyl. And it matters so much to him to have a physical copy with the physical liner notes of an album that he loves that he'd previously only listened to on his phone. Is attending concerts like this the new equivalent of everybody has this music only some of us are able to experience it in this way. In other words, it becomes one of the means by which I register the sense of aesthetic and emotional value uh, that I invest in this music. I think there's so much in that that I want to say. I think there's definitely a showing of your value by by attending these concerts. But I think beyond that, there's also 
perhaps this sense of, and we've seen this when we've looked at research into piracy of, you know, not paying for mm. music, that actually a lot of people who pirate music actually then go also purchase the music and purchase vinyl and then buy the merch. And so there's a way of showing your fan appreciation for your favorite artist and band by actually putting physical cash into something. So that's going to the concert, that's buying the merch and and all of that. So I think there's a way of, yes, declaring this is I'm passionate about it, I have a value in this, but also then supporting the artist in the way that is going to be meaningful. That's going to be far more meaningful for, you know, a band starting out than somebody who already has mega fame, of course. But I think there there is that element playing a role mm. in it. Just to go back to the first, I, it was such a long, clumsy question, Amanda. <laughs> so how important is the crowd drawing, facilitator, mediating my connection with yeah. the person who is an, seemingly an infinite distance to the stage? Yeah, so my colleagues around the world who are looking into live music, some people have really cool research lab setups where they're able to put, you know, EEG machines on and measure heart rate and brain waves of a whole crowd of people while watching a live music concert, which is just so fascinating. And the findings coming out are really cool, where we are seeing that people's heart rates are synchronizing, that we feel this through ourselves. And yes, okay, the bass is pumping and we have the music being played at very loud volumes through the speakers. But there is something not only emotionally drawing us together, but also physically the crowd is attuning to themselves. And we also are seeing research findings come out that the heart rate of the performers and the audience members are becoming somewhat in sync. Mm. So I think, yes, I think maybe something is being transmitted through and across people in the crowd that maybe, yeah, even if you're in that back row and the performer is a tiny person or, you know, you're really looking at a screen more so than the actual stage to get a bigger picture, you're feeling something that is being co-created. Does that research span a diversity of styles of concert Mm. types of performer? Yep. Uh, So some of the research coming out has looked at, some of it's in the classical context, some of it's in sort of a more um, folk pop setting. I think we still need more research because I think... Taylor isn't a participant. She hasn't signed up to... (laughs) Oh my God. Could you imagine how much data we could get in just one Taylor Swift concert? Sign me up. Whoever's listening who can make that happen, I'm here. Let's do it. Um, I think we need more because there are, if we go back to something that you guys said earlier, there are unstated norms, right, for different types of concerts. If I'm going to go to a classical concert, there are the stereotypical way you behave. You sit quietly, you wait to clap, you know, and if you don't know that, it can be really awkward and it can be quite confronting to figure out those unstated norms. But those norms are quite different if we think about the classical concert compared to the pop concert or the rock concert. Of, or even you know, the jazz gig. Or, like, yeah, you know, 100%. You, you sit yeah. quietly, but then you might whoop occasionally to show that someone's really sizzling. 
sing, and mm-hmm. then after a solo, there's the applause. It's a whole. It's a totally unique language. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't have that language, you will possibly feel out of place. But also with that language and with sort of those expectations, they're driving some of your behaviors in that space. And I suppose in the context of you know a mega Taylor Swift concert, maybe that's amplifying your behavior as well because now it's not just you who loves the music and you're super psyched and you're there and you're getting pumped up by being there and being with other people who feel that same way. So can I drag you out of your field of research into the realm of what I'll call informed speculation? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you think that will be true of other gatherings? Would you see a similar effect, do you suspect, in sporting events, in religious congregations, in comedy crowds? Mm. Or do you suspect from whatever you can infer, unless you have research, this would be amazing, (laughs) but (laughs) can you infer from what you know that there might be some differences there? That's a really interesting question. Um, I do know that there are people out there who are trying to understand the differences between things like a music experience and a sport experience and things like that. But if we take sport, for example, if you're in a live crowd, there's actually a bit of music within that, right? You've got chants. You might be singing your, you know, team song or booing. And there's actually quite a bit of sound that's happening, both for interacting with other fans, but then also the impact on the players of needing Mm. to be able to play in stadiums where there is that deafening noise people talk about that affecting their performance, right? So Mm. live sport and live music probably have quite a few similarities. I would imagine that live comedy would also, but then again, we're going back to those sort of norms of behavior of, you know, you're a more quiet participant perhaps sitting in an audience, but you are then laughing and whooping and cheering as well. So Mm. it would be really interesting to dig into the differences. I think there would be subtle differences with a lot of shared overlap. Well, everything you've identified, as you were talking about sport and definitely in comedy, there is rhythm. Mm. Like Mm -hmm. every sport, whatever sport you choose has a rhythm of some sort. It could be a really slow rhythm. It could be a a cricket or a baseball rhythm. And I suppose with that idea of rhythm, we were saying earlier that sort of energy meets energy, I think Mm, was a a phrase you said, right? And I think if your rhythm is off, if you haven't connected with the audience, be it you're as a musician, performer, or a comedian, that rhythm isn't flowing is going to impact the energy of the performance and sort of how how much it flows, right? We talk about this idea of psychological flow, of being in the moment, and that would happen both for the audience member as well as the performer. This raises something unbelievably interesting to me. If we described, and okay, this is speculation. This is a kind of aesthetic diagnosis, let's put it this way. If we describe the primary affect that's being communicated by those who attend, say, a concert during the Taylor Swift era's tour... If we describe the primary affect as being one of gratitude, that, that seems about right to me. Sort of gratitude, admiration for all that you've done, all that you've come through, all that you've changed. Because, you know, we don't have to diagnose the concert. But if that's the primary affect, if the primary affect at a Beyonce concert, part of the Renaissance tour, is obedience, let's call it all. I think that's probably getting a little bit closer. Both are forms of 
audience participation, but it's also the two of them kind of have a little bit more in common. It's almost, it's one way in response to the performance. But then we have that other type of interchange that both of you have just been talking about. I mean, I've been to sport events where I feel the home crowd has carried the team home in the end. And the opposite, where they haven't shown up. Yes, yes, absolutely Mm. right. So that's the positive side of the negative. The crowd is so loud that the visiting team can't hear themselves. And then you have those moments during a public address, during a comedy performance, during a jazz performance, during a rock concert, where it's undeniable, where the energy that is displayed by the crowd. It's not admiration. It's not obedience or awe. There's something else. It's something that flows from the crowd to the stage that then permits those on the stage to be able to do something or to keep doing something that they Mm -hmm. wouldn't have otherwise done. It's that that I think we run the risk of losing almost entirely in an age of highly choreographed capital E music events. Is that too much, Amanda? I don't know if it's too much. It definitely reminds me. So uh, we did some research with the Melbourne Recital Center trying to understand audience performer interactions. And what we realized was that's exactly what it is, is there's interactions between performer and performer, if it's more than one person on the stage. You also have then the interactions between the audience and the other audience members, as well as Mm. then the audience to the performer, as well as both of those types of people to the venue. And all of those are bi-directional. And I think that's what you've just touched on there, is that there are these exchanges happening. And maybe that's where the magic is, is that there might be expectations. You might sort of really understand how the event is going to be laid out. But I suppose the magic is in those interactions and then what those interactions can lead to. Mm-hmm. The I, thing about it, mm-hmm. Scott, I see, this takes me back, I suppose, to the point I made before, so I don't want to labour it, but sure. you might be saying something is in danger of being lost, but it just doesn't seem that it actually is. Mm-hmm. So the theory would you presuppose that it should be. I'm interested in why it isn't, or at least it doesn't feel, unless you want to get into a whole argument about, sorry, your concert just is not moving in the same way as my concert. But I, I suspect that's not actually true for... They'll have different flavors, but it's we're probably coming for the same thing. Hmm. So how? Do but I think the concert theory? could also give people different things. So you might be motivated for different motivations, and then it's going to do different things for different people. It might confirm your fan status. It might confirm your admiration. It might... Hmm confirm your appreciation for the melody and the lyric. So I think part of the power in music is that it is social and emotional and physical and all of these things, but also that it does multiple things for multiple people. This is way too harsh a simplification. (laughs) Sorry, not what you just said, what I'm about to say. That was genius, Amanda. (laughs) What, What I worry is that because of the size that's needed, because of the money that's expected to be raked in, because the dynamic, I think, of capital E live music events, I worry that so many of these effectively become, and this may well also be a product of the playlistification of music that we've talked about before. I worry that much of these concerts may well be reduced to something like giving fans what they want, giving them precisely what they expect. So you may have to wait, but it's always going to get there. 
Whereas I think without a doubt, and I'm not saying that one is higher or lower. I, I think you're right, Walida. There's an aesthetic difference here. It may well be a qualitative difference. There is also something to those moments where, again, I described it as a sort of double or nothing, where it's almost like the performers are daring the fans to meet them at a particular place. You may not have expected it. You may hate it initially, but let me try to bring you there. And I think in those instances, there is a moment of exchange, of communion, of a meeting of energies that's very, very difficult. It can't be staged. It can't be choreographed. And it undoubtedly requires effort. I mean, there's a vocation on the part, I think, of certain types of fans uh, that you can engage in without, you know, going overboard into something like mania. Hey, can I ask you both a, may well be a very personal question. Do you like it when the singer goes quiet and gives the invitation to fans to sing? (laughs) You first, Amanda. (laughs) I do. I do in the live space because I think that's an invitation for then everybody to be participating. Interesting. It wholly depends on the singer and the song. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's that's a fair response too because I think it goes back to those norms of across genres of what we expect and even tolerate might be a harsh word, but sort of the, the, the different styles of performance. Interesting. So, so, for example, if I were to... I never got to see Freddie Mercury sing mm. live. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of Queen. And so on, but I reckon I would be sitting there saying, I need to hear that voice, not mm. our voices. That's mm. my hunch too. That's yeah. what I want. Right, mind you, he mastered it because he would sing and then get everyone to that's right sing it back to him, and so you got both right. And they were incredible moments. I don't know, it's they're iconic moments actually in the history of live music. I think that Freddie doing that right, but there would be other artists at the risk of saying something that I hope doesn't offend Swifties, but it might. I, I know I'm running the risk here. I don't think the appeal of Taylor Swift to her fans is that she's an incredible vocalist or that she's a virtuosic musician. Um, she's a great songwriter, great lyric writer. He's able to articulate what people feel in their hearts. That's the, that's the bond. But I would therefore imagine, if I were a Swifty, that if she were inviting me to sing, that would be, that'd be wonderful. Because actually what is being magnified there is the bond. Mm-hmm. What's being magnified. Whereas for another artist, that's not what I would. So there's no simple answer to that question. Does that screw up the point you were driving at, Scott? <laughs> no, it expresses it perfectly. But I think it goes back to that idea of being in a communal space. Yeah. Oh, we could keep doing this forever. Amanda, thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you at the next Taylor Swift concert, I'm sure. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. Amanda Krauss, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at James Cook University in Townsville, I guess, for this week's edition of The Minefield. And we'll join you with Scott's concert review next week. Oh, no, apparently not. And while we're on the subject of live music events and Taylor Swift, Meredith Lake on our sister program, Soul Search, is going to be taking a dive into the world of Taylor Swift and popular music, but especially looking at the way that Buddhism is portrayed, the way that its influence is felt in pop music, the way that its ideas, its conception of the world and understanding of the relationship between human beings and the natural order flow through, trickle through both 
Taylor Swift's back catalog, and other forms of popular music. And if that wasn't enough for you, her guests are going to be fresh from a recent academic symposium, a Swift-posium, I kid you not, devoted to the music of Taylor Swift. You can hear it all next week. Just search Soul Search in the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.